0: Good morning it truly is an honor and a joy to get to be able to worship with you today i appreciate your pastor inviting me to come and and share in the word of god and for us to study his word together this morning thank you so much for the warm welcome we've received and for the opportunity just to be able to worship together today in just a few moments, we'll be making our way and starting to, to look at our study this morning out of Acts chapter two. So if you have Bibles with you this morning, or maybe you've got them in some other electronic form or whatever, if you wanna be pulling that up and be putting a finger there or mar- a marker there in some place, we will be looking in Acts chapter two together. On September the 27th, just a, just a few days ago, uh, Terry Mattingly in his column on religion. Some of you perhaps uh, are readers of Terry Mattingly's column on a regular basis, but in that particular column, the headline was striking. The headline of that column on September the 27th, uh, Terry Mattingly, by the way, just to let you know, he is a, he is a um, columnist that writes about current religious trends and, and things along those lines. And on September the 27th, the headline of his article that day said, COVID-19, will kill many churches. Well, that'll grab your attention, won't it? And so as we begin to look into that article, here are some of the things that that Mattingly writes about. He he references back to David Kinnaman, who is uh, the president of the Barna Group, which does a lot of church research across the the country. And in their research, Kinnaman is saying that he is hearing that denominational leaders and clergy say that they believe that in the next year or so, some churches will simply close their doors. He goes on to write, Kinnaman goes on to to state his research that in the early days of the pandemic, um, researchers uh, that talked to church insiders said they were highly confident that their churches would survive. Percentage as high as in the 70 percentile range that they said early in the pandemic. Now our church will survive. As it's gone on, that percentage has dropped and now about 50% say they believe their church will survive. Kinnaman goes on to write that in his social media channels that he researches through, that the recent prediction he makes is that one out of every five churches will close in the next 18 months. In mainline churches, Kinnaman writes, he is convinced that this number will be one in three. In part, because these rapidly aging Protestant denominations have lost millions of members since the 1960s. That's not very encouraging, is it? You're probably thinking, well, Phil, could you have found a more encouraging way to, to get started this morning? But here's, here's where the encouragement comes. That, you know That research is pointing in that direction. But here's what I honestly believe, and especially as I'm talking with pastors across our county and across our state and even beyond, but just looking at the opportunities that are ahead of, this is what I truly believe. I'm convinced that in the midst of one of the greatest challenges that we have ever faced in recent history as the church, that we have also been given the greatest opportunity in recent history. And I'm convinced of that the opportunity is right before us to evaluate what it means to actually be the church. And the opportunity is right in front of us of what it means to actually look like the church. What does it look like to be the church in a changing culture? So in the midst of these grave predictions, I'm convinced that we have the greatest opportunity ever to evaluate what does it really mean to be the church? And what does that look like to be the church in a changing culture? The sad part about that is that many churches will miss this opportunity. Many churches will miss the opportunity because they will be hanging on to what they've always done with a white-knuckled grip, just waiting for things to return to normal. But the courageous churches, the courageous churches will use this opportunity that's before us to make the necessary changes to remain viable into the future. Uh Uh-oh, I did it, I used that dreaded word, change. But I really believe that the courageous churches will make these necessary changes to remain viable into the future. Just this week, I saw this quote and I think it applies to the church today. Change happens when the cost of status quo is greater than the risk of change. Change happens when the cost of status quo is greater than the risk of change. And if we wanna follow the predictions that are there, the cost of of status quo is exceedingly high for the church, is it not? Our question is, is it greater to us than the risk of change? Because I think some of the changes have to take place. I've really been enthralled with a book recently called Canoeing the Mountains written by Todd Bolsinger who is a professor at Fuller Seminary on the west coast and Bolsinger in his book Canoeing the Mountains makes this statement the world in front of you looks nothing like the world behind you. I want to tweak that just a little bit and I want to tweak it just a little bit for us to think about it in terms like this this morning that the church in front of you looks nothing like the church behind you. It's been said that our current culture, the culture in which we live today, looks more like AD 70 than 1970. And what they mean by that is that many would say that our current post-Christian culture more closely resembles the pre-Christian culture than it does the predominantly Christian culture of the 1970s, of 50 years ago. So when we began to think in terms like that, the church in front of us looks nothing like the church behind us. Unless we look way behind us. Unless we look way behind us to the earliest days of the church. And perhaps then the church in front of us will look like the church behind us, but the church way behind us. Let's take a glimpse of that in Acts chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 42. In Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, we read, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As we look at that passage, it's important for us to take a very close look at the word devoted for just a moment. Because the word devoted applies to each one of those characteristics. The way it's written, we could actually read it this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And in that word devoted it applies it implies for us a continuing steadfastness that word devoted when we dig deeper into it it gives to us this meaning of an of an attitude and actions of dedication to something not just an attitude of convenience So when we think of that word devoted, as it's written here, it's this attitude that exists. It's followed by actions that represent a continuing steadfastness, a true dedication to something, a commitment to something. Not just an attitude of, well, if it's convenient, or if it's handy, or if it's easy, but a real steadfast commitment. And so we find that they were devoted to these things. I want you to consider with me this morning for just a moment as we study this together that a devotion to the word of God will guide the church with a biblical narrative rather than the competing narratives of the culture. See, that's so important for us to understand. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. When it's talking about the apostles' teaching, it's talking about how the apostles were literally teaching the word of God as it was communicated through them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we begin to think about that, we think about how they were focused on studying the word of God together, communicating the word of God together. They began to see how this would guide their lives. This biblical narrative, this word of God, the biblical narrative was that which guided their lives more than, than the cultural narrative of the day, more than the pre-Christian uh, cultural narrative, more than, than anything else. They were, these, this group of people known as the church were guided by the biblical narrative of God's word. See we are bombarded in our culture today. We are bombarded by cultural narratives that are competing for our attention and our devotion. All we have to do is is turn on any broadcast, pick up any podcast or whatever and what we will find is that there is a there's a cultural narrative in one arena or the other that's competing for our attention but it's also competing for our devotion wanting us to be devoted to that cause or to this cause or to another cause, when as the church, we're to be devoted to the Word. That's the narrative that should drive our lives, that should guide us. Paul reminds Timothy, that, um, he reminds Timothy to remain steadfast and to be devoted to the teaching of Scripture. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse, uh, picking it up in verse 12, Paul would encourage Timothy with these words. He would say, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that sound like a forewarning of today's culture as well? That all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That describes so much of the cultural narrative that we're exposed to today. But then he turns and he says this, "'But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. So how do we stay true to this biblical narrative? If the biblical narrative is what's supposed to guide us rather than the competing narratives of the culture, how do we stay true to that? It's something that we probably have, most of us have known all of our life, but it's, it's simple, but it's not always easy. But we stay true, true to this biblical narrative by being consistent in the word of God. By having consistent time that we spend in the word of God to know what his word says to us. Now I'm really going to go old school and go way back and suggest that another way to do that is to memorize the word. Boy, that's old school, isn't it? But by memorizing the word, what we find is that the word of God, this biblical narrative, begins to ring true in our head. It's in our head because it's in our heart. And at times when we are tempted to be guided by a cultural narrative, you know what? Holy Spirit brings to mind his word that is hidden deeply within us and I will be the first to admit, at at my stage of life, I just went for my annual physical this this year and I am so tired of physicians telling me, well, at your stage of life, (laughs) but at my stage of life, scripture memory is not as easy as it used to be. But this year at the beginning of 2020, I I signed up with a group of guys for a six to 8 a.m. Bible study every Friday morning. And a part of that is scripture memory. And since that time, since January, we've memorized 20 scriptures together, and I never thought I could do it. But you know what? It's amazing what God can enable you to do. But I would encourage you, if that's not a part of your, of your habit, look at that. Spend some, some, spend some consistent time in the word and begin to memorize the word. And then, obviously, the third thing is to apply the word. Scripture encourages us not to just be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And that which we study and know, that which is hidden deep within us, should guide our actions. We need to apply the word in our everyday lives. Another thing that I think is important for us to look at as we look at the church that is way behind us, the early church, is one of the things that we can learn too is that a devotion to fellowship places a high value on relationships, a devotion to fellowship places a high value on relationships. It says that they were devoting themselves to the fellowship. And this word fellowship was much deeper than what we often associate it with in our culture today. Many times we think of fellowship as in the church, we think of fellowship in the church as what we do during the welcome time and boy, COVID's really changed that, right? It's a lot, we, we now elbow bump or wave or whatever. But if you grew up in in Baptist churches, you probably associated fellowship with a potluck dinner or a covered dish dinner of some kind where people came together and enjoyed those times of fellowship. And I'm not against those at all. I think they're great times for the body to come together and enjoy being with each other. But the word fellowship in this particular passage is much, much deeper than that. And what it implied was that people were actually sharing what they had with one another. But there was also a high level of commitment to participation in the fellowship. There was a high level of commitment also to making a contribution to the body, to the fellowship of faith. So the word fellowship went much, much deeper than an elbow bump or sharing a meal together, although sharing the meal together was important, but it indicated that people were actually committed to this. There was a level of involvement, participation in that, sharing, contribution to the fellowship of faith. You know, one of the things that we have learned in these recent months is that the COVID-19 pandemic gathering restrictions that have been placed upon us and even some of the travel restrictions that people have either self-imposed or have been imposed upon us, it really has served to heighten the value of relationships. Because what we see is that when these were restricted in some nature or another, we have found ways, often very creative ways, to gather we found creative ways to gather beyond our buildings, which is an important truth as well, right? That it helps us to understand that being the church is not tied to a structure, to a building. And we found creative, we found some exciting ways to gather beyond our buildings and to make the extra efforts that have been needed to meet the needs of our neighbors and, and other people within our communities. Why have we done that? Why have we gone those extra miles? Because we understand this. We understand that relationships need to have a high value to us, and they do. When we value relationships, a couple of things happen. When we value relationships, we truly care about one another. It's not just some some words that we speak, but when we value relationships, we truly care about one another. But not only do we care about one another, we truly care for one another. See, that really is the essence of them being devoted to the fellowship. They cared about one another, but they cared for one another. It says later in the passage that we've looked at, they were, um, and all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging, distributing the proceeds to all as any who had need. What that meant was they were not trying to create some kind of an equal distribution. What they were doing is they were saying, hey, if someone in our fellowship has a need, we want to meet that need. And we'll make the personal sacrifices that are necessary to make sure that we care about one another and that we care for one another. And one of the beautiful things is that when we think, well, what what would it really look like to be in true fellowship? This is a beautiful thing. You can do your own study later, but take a look sometime and just do a personal study through the New Testament and look up all of the scripture passages that talk about one another. What you'll find is that over approximately 100 times in about 94 different verses, you'll find about 59 different ways that we can care about one another and care for one another. Another thing that we see about the church that's in front of us is that a devotion to the breaking of bread will elevate the purpose of Christ over and above our own self-focused interest. A devotion to the breaking of bread will elevate the purpose of Christ over and above our own self-focused interest. The breaking of bread to which they were devoted most commonly was observed as a meal together, usually in someone's home, and in that particular meal, it included the sharing of the bread and the cup that we've come to call the Lord's Supper. And they would come together, and they would have this meal together, and then they would they would share in this particular um, uh, this particular um, Activity of breaking the bread together, of sharing the cup together, and it was designed to help remind them of the importance of their relationship with Jesus Christ. See, when they would break the bread together and when they would drink from the cup together, it would serve to elevate the purpose of Christ in their relationship with him. The breaking of the bread, the sharing of the cup, a beautiful reminder that Christ came and gave his own life for the forgiveness of our sin that we might be in a right relationship with him. And then Jesus himself would say to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. As the Father sent him for that very purpose, to bring us into a right relationship with God the Father, he's now sending us as the church. And they were reminded that that was their primary purpose. But it was also to serve them as a reminder that they were to be in a right relationship with one another, and that's that's where they kind of got it mixed up, because they were elevating their own self-interest over and above the purpose of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul writes to them, he writes to the church in Corinth about the way in which they're going about this. And in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 17, he says, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. He said, "I, I don't even have good words to say to you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you And he goes on to tell them again, that's not what you're doing. He's saying, look, when you come together and you eat this Lord's Supper together, when you partake of the bread and the cup together, you're supposed to be reminded of the very purpose for which Christ gave himself for us, that we would be in a right relationship with him. And that should put us in a right relationship with one another. And Paul says, but that's not what you're doing. You're looking out for your own interest. You're making sure that you're fed and, and satisfied. And others continue on in great need. You see, we have to be reminded that the church in front of us, if we're going to be viable into the future, we need to understand that this breaking of bread, this covenant, this commitment, is not just a ceremony. It's a reminder that we're to elevate the purpose of Christ over and above our own self-focused interest. And the church in front of us will also have a devotion to prayer. And a devotion to prayer will instill within us a realistic view of our hope for this world. That's exactly what it will do. Devotion to prayer will instill within each one of us a realistic view of our hope for this world. It's believed by most that when this reference to prayer was a reference to the the sessions of both personal and corporate prayer in which the church was engaged. And as they would come together, I'm sure without doubt that they would pray for, for the needs of one another, but I believe that they also were praying for the church in the world but they weren't looking just for this world. They understood the fact that they were praying helped us to know that they understood that the hope for the world in which they lived was in Christ. And when we have a devotion to prayer, it will instill within us the same realistic hope, a realistic hope for the world in which we live. This past week, Jacob Haywood wrote a blog post, and in this blog post, Haywood writes these words. The First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution isn't where the church's hope lies, nor does it lie in the outcome of the 2020 election. The hope of the church is not even in a Christian nation. The hope of the church is in Christ himself. It's a good thing for churches to be forced from no longer hoping in themselves or their standing to hoping solely in God. Hope is what allows the church to live beyond the chaos while amid the chaos. It's also what allows followers of Christ to endure when it seems like their efforts are in vain. They're not. This world isn't our home. It's when we hope in God that we find ourselves more able to impact a seemingly hopeless world. Perhaps C.S. Lewis said it best in Mere Christianity when he wrote, hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that continuing looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but it's one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we're to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. You see, it's this type of devotion that characterized the church behind us, the church way behind us. And look what happened. They were filled with a sense of awe God did amazing and miraculous things among them. They had a spirit of unity. They met one another's needs. They had a heart of praise and worship. They had favor among the people. And people were being saved. That was the church behind us, (laughs) way behind us. but I believe with all of my heart that it can also be the church in front of us. When we study the Word of God together, He gives us an opportunity to respond to what He's revealed to us. We want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning as well. I believe that Terry will be standing here to receive you. If you would like to make some kind of a commitment to where you might want to come and have a, t- a word of prayer. Maybe some of you this morning are needing to make a commitment to place your, your hope, your hope for this world, your hope for your life in Christ and in Christ alone. Terry would love to guide you through that. There may be some of you that say, you know what, I want to be a church. I want to be a church that's going to be the church in front of us. And I believe that that is this church, Central, Central Bearden. Maybe this is where God's calling you to come and and be a part of this community of faith. Terry can lead you through that as well. But I'm gonna pray and ask God's spirit to place this word deep within our heart. After I pray, if you are able, stand. Mark will lead us in a song. Holy Spirit, God, we thank you. We thank you for your word and the truth of it. We pray now that you would let it dwell deep within our hearts. that we might commit to being your church, your church in front of us, because you're the hope of the world today. It's in your name we pray, amen.